My name is Eric Ries. This is Out of the Crisis. One of the themes that has come up for me again and again is the importance of coordinating an organization. Now more than ever, we have to step up as a community, as citizens and as people to support each other. In the early days of the pandemic, there was a severe lack of this coordination and organization. Even at the micro level, people with skills and resources to help really didn't know how to communicate and organize in a consistent way. And I think this fed our collective feeling of helplessness. And it wasn't long after that at least I started to feel like a member of a community of people all working on the same problem. So how did that come about? How did it happen? Who brought us together? One of those organizations is called helpwithcovid.com. It helps match volunteers with projects that need volunteers. And they've placed thousands and thousands of volunteers. I personally have used it to recruit hundreds. It's been incredibly helpful in the projects that I'm working on and will include links in the show notes. This is one of a million stories of ordinary people stepping up and making a difference. While many of us were feeling despair, Radu saw an opportunity to help. He was in dialogue with two pretty important Silicon Valley power players who suggested that there needed to be a way to match volunteers with projects. And he had a fully functioning site to do that up and running two days later. Two days after that, it had placed its first thousand volunteers. In some ways, Radu's story is typical Silicon Valley. He was an immigrant from Romania, a software engineer, came to the Bay Area, did Y Combinator, started a company, sold it, made connections, and became part of this ecosystem. And so when the crisis hit, he was already primed to approach it as a founder, as a maker, as a builder. But that doesn't explain the whole story. Because many of us could have done what Radu did, and yet he's the one that actually did it. And that's another thing I think is so important about a crisis. None of us really know what we'll be like when we're called to service in an emergency. You can never really guess or imagine. You just have to do it. And it is on each of us to ask ourselves, what can I make? What could I build? How can I help right now? Here's the story of helpwithcovid.com. Hi, uh, my name is Radir. I work on Help With COVID, which is a clearinghouse that matches volunteers uh, with projects that are working on you know, the current crisis. What were you doing before Help With COVID? Uh, before Help With COVID, uh, I had started a startup. I'm a YC alum that went through YC, and we we sold that company uh, about a year and a half ago, and then I left the acquirer in in the late January. And then I've been just not doing anything. I moved back to the Bay Area. Back to the Bay Area from, from where? From LA. You're originally from Romania, right? Yes. I'm a long, long time ago, about 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. How did you come to the be in the Bay Area? Um, I actually started a company in Romania. I started the biggest affiliate network in Romania. And I realized that one, I really like building companies. And two, that you know, if you want to make a difference, you just have to be here, uh, have to be in the Bay Area because you have access to the most amazing people in the world that are not only incredibly smart, but have this like big picture vision of, of op- an optimism of what you can build. And also you have some amazing groups of people that are just willing to fund 
two random Romanians from Romania and give them like millions of dollars to start a company, which I think it's pretty unique. You you talk about yourself as a builder. What what does that mean to you? Why why do you? I mean, I'm the same way, but why do you like building things so much? I feel like it's just the the feeling of making something out of nothing. That you see a problem and you get a picture of your head of how to solve it, and you just turn it into reality. And that's one uh, a magical feeling. But then once you see people actually use it, and you know, sort of like the magic product market fit, which is amazing. If you've you've had product market fit, you feel it immediately, and that's the second magical feeling, and it's quite addictive. What was it like going through Y Combinator? You you were there in the previous era when uh, when Paul Graham was still leading it. Is that right? Yes, we we were the last PG badge, and it, you know, YC just changes your life completely. Before YC, you're just like you know a random person. And you can email people and like, it's always harder. It's like people are not answering your emails. They're like, oh, who, you know, is this person serious? Is this person going to survive in the Bay Area for the long term? Because, you know, so many people just come and, and, and leave. And once you go through YC, you know, you're not a random, and maybe it's not a nice way of saying it, but like, you're not like a random person. Yeah, it's like, like a modern day credentialing system. Exactly. And you're still the same person, you know, before and after, but you can, you basically, it opens so many doors and um, I know for sure that Y Combinator like changed my life completely. These are dark times. How are you doing? How are you holding up? How's your family? What's your quarantine setup like? Uh, my quarantine setup is I moved back to the Bay Area and I'm in a tiny one bedroom apartment right now. Oh man. And um, I, I'm pretty good. You know, I always worry about other people, especially with like, you know, a lot of the stuff that's happening. Uh, and my, my parents are actually all back in Romania. Everybody in my family is back in Romania. My, my dad is older. He's like 80. He has all the underlying conditions and I'm definitely worried, but you know, it's, I'm, I'm happy because like I heard I was on Twitter early on, you know, I kind of like was able to email them and call them. I tell them stay indoors. Don't get out the house, you know, so Mm -hmm. I think, I think they're going to be okay. (laughs) How is the, do you have a sense of how the pandemic response is going in Romania? Uh, I mean, they went full authoritarian where uh, they, you know, basically you're not allowed to get out of the house unless you have, a, you know, you download an app or you, you tell the police why you want to get out of the house. Oh my. Uh, if you are over 65, you're only allowed out of the house one hour per day. That's it. And it's like super extreme. Like it's hardcore extreme. And kudos to them. They, they did it very early. But that's good because the medical system is remaining. It's just a complete mess. Was there a moment for you when you realized the pandemic was real? I feel that, yes. The, I think the moment for me when it was very real is I was on Twitter and I was kind of ignoring it because there were a lot of things happening in my life in January. But I remember I had a friend visiting from, from Asia and I really, you know, I'm really, really love that person, but I was worried that, okay, this person is literally coming from China right now. And am I worried about meeting him? Like, is, did he take all the necessary precautions and stuff like that? And it sort of like created this instinctual feeling of like, oh, oh maybe this is not okay. Maybe this is going to get out. And I know it's not, maybe again, it's not something that's very nice to say, but I feel like that's when like I started actually thinking about it for the first time in a more serious way. How about you? You know, 
I had this, it wasn't a moment for me. I had this growing, sinking feeling that something bad was happening uh, over the course of, you know, really January, February uh, into March. And I kept taking emergency preparedness steps that felt extreme, you know, on Monday. And then by Wednesday, I wished I'd done more. And by Friday, I felt like I was hopelessly behind. So it's like this process of trying to catch up with reality, try to understand it, try to figure it out and not be consumed with regret and despair, especially as I, as I realized that, you know, there was going to be severe national differences in how people responded. You know, there was kind of a moment when we had that optimism that there would be a global coming together, a science-driven, consensus-driven political response all over the globe. And, and when that didn't happen, then I really, I really had some dark days. It makes a lot of sense. I'm still optimistic about everything. I, I've gone back and forth, but now I'm back to being optimistic. Well, what do you think that optimism is born out of? I think that optimism is born out of, you know, for instance, just like help with COVID. Uh, in, when we launched it, um, it, we literally, you know, built it in like two days and we put it up and like we had no idea if anybody's going to use it. But Initially, it was started because, you know, Dustin Moskowitz and Sam Altman were like getting so many emails about people wanting to help and projects looking for help. And so that, you know, they, they added me to Sam, added me to the thread because I previously did stuff with Sam, like the YC's carbon request for startups. And he knew I was, I was sort of like, uh, sort of like in this phase in, in the middle of, of things. Um, and people stepped up immediately like we got a, an immediate response like the in the first day the response was absolutely amazing and talking about you know that feeling of product market fit mm-hmm. it's like you could tell that there was a need where like projects were like already starting up and like people wanted to help and from the very beginning i was actually super optimistic because uh, on this side on the help with covid stuff i saw so many people offering to help um that's how it started and now no, there's a lot of things happening in the background and uh, it's just, you know, even the news from yesterday with like Gilead and, and I was talking to some people today and I just, I think, I think we're, I think it's going to be okay. So I remember very distinctly when Help With COVID launched, I was um, right in the middle of starting up my first of what has been several pop-up organizations uh, to deal with the crisis. And I, I must have heard about it from Sam Altman. And I went on there and, you know, I, I posted my first project, I think, I don't know, I, I, there weren't very many projects posted yet. So I was relatively early. And I was just stunned with how many amazing volunteers started pouring in just that first day. It, it was both the, the quantity of it was overwhelming, but the quality of people who were really interested in helping out. Uh, was really amazing. So, so first of all, thank you for building it. it. It's been an incredibly useful resource for me and the projects that I've been um, I've been affiliated with. Tell us about kind of how you how the idea came to you. Tell us about how you built it, and tell us what those early couple of days of grappling with product market fit was like. Definitely. So it wasn't actually uh, it wasn't my idea. It was this email exchange between Sam and Dustin. And Talking about Dustin Moskowitz, the Asana co-founder, Facebook co-founder. Exactly, that's yeah. Moskowitz. And, and Sam Altman, who our, our listeners will remember from a previous uh, episode, former president of Y Combinator. Exactly. And so, like, I remember it was, like, you know, it was Sunday. 
and it was like 4 p.m. and I was grocery shopping and I was with my girlfriend and like we were like I was picking up oranges and I got this email from Sam where I was like hey you know I think this is a cool idea are you in are you in or like are you interested in building this and uh, I immediately replied yes and then I tried to convince my girlfriend to cut grocery shopping short so I could go home and build it um, which didn't work very well but <laughs> I managed <laughs> I got home in like an hour and um, basically, you know, I was talking to Sam and like asked him like, you know, what's his opinion on, you know, what's his vision for this? And like, he gave me like, you know, some, some things that were important to him. And then we just basically, I built the first version by, we launched it Tuesday morning. Um, so it went, it went incredibly fast. And the whole idea was like, okay, this is a crisis. We need to move fast. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, if you remember, like you didn't know how long this was going to last. It was this feeling of maybe it was too much optimism. They were like, oh, maybe just like two to three weeks and it's going to be okay. Um, so we, we launched it by Tuesday. Sam tweeted it on Tuesday and immediately started getting a lot of projects. And the first thing we did is like we, I realized that like, hey, you know, I was because help with COVID was on the website and we were eating our own dog food, I realized no, like, like you, we had a problem, like a hundred people applied and we're like, to be volunteers, like I have no idea how to manage all these people and so many people. And, uh, so I immediately started a discord. Um, and I started discord, I picked discord over Slack just because I had used Slack. The company I was at had was a full on like Slack company mm-hmm. and I got burned out with Slack and I wanted <laughs> and discord it seemed like a fun thing to try out. Yeah. And, it's mostly used for, for gaming and, uh, and. Um, kind of mass mass coordination uh, more than kind of official work projects. Exactly, and so we we, we created like created Discord, which actually I think ended up being perfect. Yeah, it's a really good fit for this use case. Exactly, and like a thousand people signed up immediately, like in the first like three or four days. And so going to that, like right now, is you know like help with COVID is run by like a core team of volunteers who are absolutely amazing, and they basically, they self-select themselves. It's like people who are on Discord and who are involved in the project now just pay attention to who is the most involved and who wants to help the most and you just give them more responsibility. It's an amazing thing to watch. We'll put a link to the Discord uh, in the in the show notes for those who want to come see how this organization is done. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. But I want to go back to those first two days. So, so you got the idea from Sam and Dustin and, and boy, what a Silicon Valley story that you know you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're not that long ago you were an immigrant you know coming to the us for the first time now these billionaires are uh, are emailing you ideas to work on and then you're so sunday night you have the idea you launched it tuesday so that has been a recurring theme of these conversations is how fast in a crisis you need to get these minimum viable products out the door so there must have been a moment when somebody said to you, you know, maybe we should take another day or two, make it a little bit more perfect. I just think about how much worse the world would be now if you'd taken a whole week to build that first version and those thousand people who wound up signing up on Thursday, they would have had to go do something else. So talk about the pressure you felt to go fast. How were you actually just mechanically, how did you get it done in two days? Um, well, I'm a startup founder and I, my problem is I launch things way I, I've done this all the time where I launch things before they are ready. Um, even with my previous startup, I would launch features which are not ready yet, and we would just fix them as people were using them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no pressure because 
you know, Sam trusted me uh, mm. because we worked previ- we worked together previously. And my first email to Sam and like when Sam and Dustin were like on the third row, like they're asking me like, you know, what's important? It's like, what do you think is important? It's like my, I said that we have to launch it by Tuesday. And I actually wanted to launch it Monday night. So I failed. <laughs> Let this be a lesson to a lot of startup founders out there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was, I built, you know, the, it was quite easy to build. It was not, it's not a complicated technical project, right? It's, it's just, you have to get the first experience so it's not clunky. Um, so people, you can focus on, you know, people seeing that projects, seeing that people are volunteer, seeing that other amazing, um, seeing that other amazing people have applied and they want to help. And we, we right now, like the first version, obviously, we're very, I was very disappointed with, but luckily now there's a bunch of amazing people that, that are working to make it better. But I do remember one of the first, like it was, I think Tuesday or, or Wednesday when I was looking through the volunteer list and I saw like Dave, Dave Morin volunteer publicly to oh, help wow. out. That's the founder of Path for those that don't know him. Yes. And like, you know, I really, I'm a big fan of Dave Moore. And at some point a long time ago, he even emailed us at Tap and said, I love what you guys are doing, but I've never had a conversation with him. But like he applied to this thing as well. And I was like, oh, that's so amazing. I cannot believe Dave Moore in applied. That is, uh, I mean, I've had, I've even had moments like that. When I look at the people who've applied uh, through help with COVID, it's been pretty, uh, pretty shocking. Uh, like I said, the caliber of folks who who are are able and willing to help. You know, I remember what impressed me about the site even though it was launched quickly, it was really polished. Like I thought you did a great job of, some people think minimum viable product means like have a hundred features and then have them be like half half good. So it's kind of like a bunch of crap. Like it didn't do very much, but what it did, it did very well. It was very responsive. Website was super snappy. And I remember the signup process was really fast. No extraneous fields, no extra nonsense, no check boxes and end user license agreement. It was just very fast to go from signing up to posting project and the responsiveness of the site actually like felt really good. So that like it was a great MVP, not just because it was done quickly, but because you were really selective about what features to include and what could be skipped. And I just, I was really impressed. It, it gave me a lot of confidence to use it and maybe want to post more projects there. Thank you. I mean, that, that means a lot. Um, you know, I mean, from a technical point of view, we just basically, um, what we did is we focused on, we didn't care about the underlying technology. We didn't want, we just cared about what is easiest to get out the door and, 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 you know, to move as fast as possible because you no, know, it's not a, like you said, like it is polished, but it's not like, um, it doesn't have to have like the beautiful animation from the first version. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's polished, but not fancy. If that, that's maybe a way of talking about it has that kind exactly. of like almost a Craigslist vibe to it where it's it's lo-fi, yes. but it works very well. That's intentional. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell, tell us what the tech stack is under the hood, just for those that want to know. Of course. So it's uh, very simple. It's actually just Rails plus uh, a CSS framework called Tailwind UI. And what's great about it is like, you don't have to worry. And you don't have to, everybody knows Rails. People have done Rails. Sorry, I didn't mind to say everybody knows Rails. When I say it's like, Rails is very easy to get into, mm-hmm. um, especially since I'm a creative base. And Tailwind UI is just an amazing uh, 
it's amazing UI interface to get started. So I could purely focus on on just the core features and not worry about you know a bunch of design stuff or like real stuff. And yeah, that's the whole stack. So tell us what Help with COVID is. What does it actually do? Help with COVID is a clearinghouse that matches volunteers that want to help with the current crisis and projects that are making an impact. How does it work? If you are, if you are, uh, have an idea to start a project, or if you are, even if you're an established project and are looking for a specific help, you go to helpwithcovid.com. Uh, you, you create a project inside our interface where you add a bunch of very helpful information, uh, like, you know, what the project does, who's working on it, how far along are you, what specific help uh, are you looking for, and then um, volunteers that are have applied to help out, um, basically volunteer to help you, and you can get you will get an email, you will get the Discord channel, and then sort of like it's up to you to be able to create um, to take these volunteers and integrate them into your own project and, and, and give them like guidance on how to help you. We, we also have this volunteer directory where you can find very specific help. So for instance, if you're looking for help with, let's say, Flutter, right? For instance, we had the, you know, the World Health Organization building an app. They're not on the website, uh, but, you know, Harper is, has been helping them. And he, you know, he basically was looking for Flutter developers, so we were just basically, we told him to go and, and search the volunteer database, and he found, I think he, he we gave him a bunch of numbers of people. And um, so, yeah, that's the second component. So to recap, you post a project, you get volunteers that want to help you. If you're looking for specific help, you can also search the volunteer database. So it's, it's kind of like a two, two-sided marketplace almost, uh, volunteers searching for projects, projects searching for volunteers. Exactly. You said you felt like it had product market fit. How do you know? Um, the first day, <laughs> the second day. Um, first, the growth. Like the most important thing when you look at you know any project, you look at the growth, and you know the metrics change over time. The first, the first metrics were like number of projects created. The second metrics is number of volunteers, and then obviously it's volunteers applying to projects. And all those numbers have been growing. But I feel like leaving aside numbers, oftentimes you 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 see product market fit when you look at the content that's being created, uh, the people, the interactions between people. And it's very hard. I mean, how do you how do you explain product market fit in a way to people that have never seen product market fit? It's really hard to explain. I know. It's such a funny thing. You something you absolutely know it when you see it. And yet, that's not very helpful if you've never seen it. Yeah. So what does it feel like? To walk us through what it's like. Oh, my God. It's the most addictive feeling in the world. It's, uh, I mean, for me, at least. Like, when you see people that you've built something, and because all of us have built stuff that nobody used, and it's part of the learning process, and it, it hurts a lot, and you keep on trying to, like, like Sisyphus, like, push the boulder up the mountain, and then, you know, nobody... You, release this amazing feature and still nobody comes back so you go and push it and when you have product market fit it's just like a wind that pushes you forward where people just come and they love it um, i remember like a long long time ago i made this so i had like three moments where i created product market fit 
the first one was the company in Romania where this was a flight network and we launched it and it was such a big need in the market that like after we signed the first ones were like first three store the flight network is like an ad network for e-commerce like the first three stores signed up and like it took us like a month and a half to sign up and then we got like 20 signups in, in the next week or something like that and people were loving it and saying this is the most amazing thing the second time was I had failed. The first time I applied to IC, I got rejected. My co- my initial co-founder then left. Um, and I was like going some really dark times during Christmas. So I was, it was on, 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 I remember December, I was in Eastern Europe, it was really cold. And I created, I don't know, do you know Cinemagraphs? Yeah, I remember that. So I created the first Cinemagraph making app in the App Store. And I created this, this was like a cinemagraph is like a static photo in which something moves. And so I was really sad and I, I, on Hacker News, I saw cinemagraphs and I got this idea of like this behavior of like you create a video, you select like the static frame and you, you just poke a hole in the frame and you play the video underneath. And then you turn that into like a GIF or GIF, not to get political. <laughs> it was so weird because I just did, I thought I was going to get like 40 users, right? I just failed before. And it was like between, I don't remember when, I think it was between Christmas and New Year's, like I get a phone call and it was Apple. And it was this guy at Apple. And it's like, hey, here, we're the, it was very, this was like 10 years ago, right? And we got, we really love what you were making. And I said like, what? It's like, what? We really love what you were making. We were wondering if you can add a flag feature inside of the app because we want to feature it. I was like, yes, sir, I'll build it right now. <laughs> And uh, it was crazy. Like, I didn't, I built it for like 40 people. So they featured it. And I think it got like 100,000 downloads in, in, the, in the week when they featured it. And the process to create animated GIFs was like so hard, so intensive. So I actually had to learn AWS and distribute it in like, while well, everything was burning at the same time. And so that was an amazing feeling too. And I think weirdly, when our YC company, you know, we were that thing where like we never actually got proper product market fit, which is, you know, sad. Um, but this third time is right now with like help with COVID. Tell us some of your metrics. You want to share some vanity metrics to show off for a second? Yes. You've totally earned it. <laughs> Thank you. So what we're most proud of is the number of projects. We are right now at 600 projects and 11,000 volunteers. And this project did not exist. Help with COVID did not exist a month ago. So 600 projects, 11,000 volunteers, and uh, 10,000 people applied to volunteers with a project. So 10,000 matches. It's like an army of volunteers. Yeah. And what is interesting is like help with COVID's niche, it's very like specialized people. So, you know, there's some amazing projects out there, like, you know, for instance, on, on Reddit, and, and so many other so Facebook groups, it's like a lot of people have offered to help and everybody's helping with like so many things. For instance, a very legit project is like, you know, going and helping and delivering things to people who can't go out. And a lot of these people are, you know, things are organized in Facebook groups and that's actually amazing. Um, on Help With COVID, if you look through the people that apply here, like they're really specialized, like technical people, and or like startup people or product people, 
amazing designers and a lot of Silicon Valley people. And this is one thing that I've learned right now in the past year, especially the company that acquired us is how much of the product that you create is going to be the DNA of the founders. Meaning, so this company where they acquired us had amazing product people and amazing ops people based on the DNA. Um, but some areas were like not as strong because there was nobody to basically go to the founders or from other areas and say, oh, this is bullshit because everybody was afraid of the boss. So because everybody was afraid of the boss or the founders, then there was this hesitancy to actually say what's happening. So here with like help with COVID, the DNA is, you know, for the most part, people that are building technology companies or people that are building hard sciences, it's. I don't want to say only the Bay Area because it's not only the Bay Area, but it is highly influential with like the Bay Area ecosystem, right? With like Sam and Dustin and you and so many amazing people that have applied. So the DNA of Health with COVID is like highly ambitious, specialized people that want to make a difference and have the confidence to know that they can make a difference, if that makes sense. So if someone wants to volunteer for a project, what are some projects that could use help right now? One project that, that I thought, sorry, one project that I felt was interesting um, was Volunteer Safe. It's a project that helps with all the Facebook groups and Reddit groups that are um, for very local Facebook and Reddit groups are we're making a local impact. For instance, like elderly grocery delivery or medicine delivery. And the problem is when you sign up. Uh, to help out in all of these groups and someone does the matching, you actually have no idea if those people are okay, if people if those people are trustworthy. So what they do is like they want to do background checks for, uh, you know, based on Google Sheets. It's like as low tech as possible. You connect the Google Sheet to your platform. They do background checks and, and they say, okay, this guy can actually go and deliver food to an elderly's uh, home and they won't drop them. Now, obviously, again, I'm not saying people do that. I'm saying like, if there's one person out of a million that does this, it's still a bad experience, horrible experience. Um, another project is Apollo. And Apollo, what it does is they route, um, they route physicians to where they're most needed. So some projects are under capacity and other, some hospitals are under capacity and some hospitals are just overrun with problems. And what they do is like they they're trying to build this technology where they route physicians based on where they can make the most impact and it's you know they're trying to build this like this it's not actually just a job board which doesn't do anything but it's also not an agency that's, that takes 15 percent of your salary it's just this thing in the middle that uses uh just technology and perhaps machine learning to find the best fit for physicians um other projects were you know the classic project N95, uh, which are trying to solve the mask problem. And it's, they're not the only one. Operation Masks uh, is another one as well. I know you are trying to, to, to do an impact with, on that as well. It's still a pretty serious problem that hasn't been solved yet. Mm-hmm. And so any of those projects like require a lot of help um, because it's a lot of a lot of them is just calling suppliers, vetting partners. The, you know that requires still kind of requires a lot of technology. Then there's like, obviously, the medical projects. The medical projects that are being posted on Help with COVID are kind of harder to judge because, one, 
we we, we don't have we have an amazing scientific advisor called uh, Dr. Ambika, who had a panel which works for the State Department, and uh, is just just absolutely smart. But we might not be the right fit because what a lot of those medical projects what they need like especially hard sciences they need a lot of funding they need labs they need guidance to go through the FDA process and we might we try to help them but we not we might not be the right fit for them what kind of skills what kind of volunteer skills are most in demand that what you've seen so far what we've seen is so there's first of all design it feels like everybody needs some kind of design help it's been a lot of requests for design help um, software engineering, because just of the nature of what we've been building, um, we'd be surprised how much there's been requests for just people talking on the phone, meaning that can be volunteer vetting, that can be partner vetting, that could be, uh, you know, just answering phone for someone who wants to talk to someone, just people who are able to talk on the phone is like a huge demand. We, so I, I would put these under like call center, uh, volunteer vetting, partner vetting, stuff like that. I've been amazed working with these projects, how many opportunities there are for ordinary people who are just willing to do whatever it takes to get stuff done, who don't necessarily have a specialized skill set like engineering or design, how much value they can add to projects, all of whom need help with project management, answering the phones, crafting emails, uh, dealing with social media. And I've been encouraging the people I know who are kind of on the sidelines to get involved. And one of the barriers I see is people have this idea that, well, I, I'm not, I don't have a special skill or I'm not a special person. Who, well, who would really need me? Can you talk a little bit about just the range of kinds of people that you've seen be effective uh, across these projects? It's a very good question. So on our end, it's like you said, it's people that want to step up. And it's simple as that. Everybody, anybody who wants to step up um, right now is is going to make a large impact. To give you an example, with like our core team, so the first core team member we had uh, was this amazing person named Tanay, and she just joined us on she joined me on Discord in the beginning, and she's a designer during her full time day job, but then she started doing this amazing basically operations of like managing the Discord, grouping projects, giving me feedback and advice, going to the website. I felt like she was more like a COO than, you know, so the day job is like a design, but she comes in and she actually helps me just run the project and bring order into the chaos. And it was just amazing. Then you have people like Kinj, and Kinj's job is to go through all the projects to especially take care of the most projects that are seem to be taking off and he joins all the discord of all the projects and she just talks to everybody I, I he's an engineer as well so and during the day he's an engineer but he's doing something completely different where like he is just basically uh the person it's like he's more of a like imagine like the account manager the customer success person where they make sure like everybody has everything they need and that's critical and that's something that you know this idea of hand-holding is at some point, especially right now, where like the peak enthusiasm has been reached. And now it's a lot about going through the grind of, of, of matching the right projects, the right volunteers. And 
this is incredibly important where someone has to have like a big picture of all the everything that's happening so you never you know one of the good reasons of actually joining a startup is you you, know, you can make such a larger impact meaning you, you have the option of being you know a salesperson at a, you know a big large enterprise company or you can take the risk to join a completely unproven startup, but you know perhaps you can be the head of sales or you can be the first salesperson. And what happens is, is like you you have to, oftentimes you have to choose. There's this like thing between risk and responsibility. But if you're willing to take more risk, you will get a lot more responsibility. And some people, you know, just don't want that, and it's perfectly okay. Some people want to put like work-life balance, and they're very focused on safety and that's perfectly okay i want to make that sure but then there's some people who are just like one i just want to make a large impact right now but other people are just okay i don't care about imposter i mean i care about i have imposter syndrome but i'm still going to go for it anyways and i'm going to do my best and most of those people can actually succeed uh this idea that we cannot do anything is it's just in our heads we never we you know and I'm pretty sure like Tine joined just because, you know, she was looking to help. But then it turns out like she's a designer, but actually she's a great operations people person. She's like, she can actually, I'm pretty sure like she can run a company without any kind of problems. And so this is a great opportunity for a lot of people to do something that they, they, they could actually be very good at and, and learn a lot of things because you learn the most things in complete chaos. If you have a project that's taking off, even if it's not taking off, this idea of like getting out of your comfort zone and taking all responsibility will teach you so much. Um, so the big picture is like, if you want to help, there's so many projects out there that are looking for help and just go and help them. And you're going to go inside of those projects. It's probably going to be a complete mess. Like all the projects right now are a complete mess and that's okay. I mean, none of us are qualified to be doing what we're doing. I think that's, that's kind of the nature of a crisis, you know? Yeah. How are your things internally? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's always chaos. Um, and they're at different levels of maturity, you know, at, at your point about product market fit. I mean, when we did, um, we did schoolclosures.org, that started, it was just me and a founder, an education founder um, who I really admire. And we were trying to get other companies, other education companies kind of on board to, to do it together with us so that there wouldn't be like 5,000 different competing education resources for parents who were struggling. And it took, it was very similar to what you described, it took us about, I think we did a weekend, so three or four days for between having the idea for the first time and having it live. We had maybe 10 or 12 um, company partners for the first you know, first version of it. And we did a, um, uh, we had a Twilio hotline. We'll put a link um, to Twilio Flex, which is this awesome technology that makes it really easy to build your own call center uh, in the show description. So we had that going. We had volunteers who could kind of answer answer the phone if parents called in and needed help. We had homeschooling families who were experienced with having to school at home, kind of standing by to help families who had never done that before. And you know, the first few weeks, especially were very, very chaotic. Now I think it's like, there's like 190 volunteers. So it's, it's quite, it's quite a production now. And they've, they've had several wow. spinoff sites and they're, um, there's a huge fundraiser going to launch Monday. I don't 
I don't think I'm revealing anything that's not supposed to be public yet, but there'll be a big fundraiser on Monday to buy technology for parents who don't have it. So there's a huge digital divide inequality story in education. I mean, there always has been in this country, but especially with this crisis, you have tons of schools that have moved to online education and something like 20% of families don't have a computer at home. And they're being told by the school district, we'll just go to the library and the libraries are closed. So it's just kind of totally incoherent. So we'll be raising funds to get laptops to families. And what's interesting about that strategy of having the hotline, having these partners is, and I really recommend this to other projects too, by having a place that people can call, even if your website doesn't have the answer that they need, it's kind of what you did with Discord. It creates an opportunity for you to discover new problems that you didn't even know were going to be part of it. So when people started calling in, you know, we didn't, we were not at all thinking about IT support as a need for parents in the early days of the project. We were very focused on educational resources, but there's a lot of parents who couldn't figure out how to use Zoom. I remember we had one parent who called in and we were like, um, I'm trying to use Zoom. I, I called Zoom, but they haven't called me back. Wow. Yeah, that's, <laughs> oh boy, you know, Zoom's a little busy right now. I don't think they're going to be able to get back to you. Um, you're going to need to step it up now, you know? And so we had people do IT support. And through that, we discovered parents who couldn't find computers. And, and I was I was very naive. I thought, oh, there'll be tons of nonprofits, I'm sure, leaping into the gap to get laptops for people. And we talked to tons of educational foundations who that's what they work on. And they'd be like, yep, we're on it. We have a program. We're raising money. We're like, I know, but I have this one family in Gainesville, Florida right now who needs a laptop. Can you help us get them a laptop? And that's been another interesting disconnect in this crisis. Many of the official foundations and institutions that are supposed to be solving these problems, they're just, they're simultaneously saying that they're on it and they're taking care of it. And then just going so slowly that they're not actually helping. And I've been I've been a little bit shocked. I mean, obviously this is even more prevalent on the PPE side, but I've been told in every in every project I've been involved in, I've been told by multiple experts to stand down and wait for the cavalry to come, wait for the official thing to to be ready. And normally that's what I would do. I hate duplication. I'm not a, I'm absolutely not in favor of amateurs doing work that should be done by experts. Um, but in the crisis, it has seemed like certain areas, there's just these gaps where our institutions are not able for whatever reason to, uh, to act quickly enough. And that has required ordinary people to, to step into those gaps. And it's been, it's been a little bit strange. It definitely has been incredibly strange. And I'm sure on the mass side is from what I've read is like the strangest of all the strangest of all things. Uh, it has been a very surreal, very surreal experience, but, um, if people, uh, if people are listening, I think by the time this episode uh, comes out, we'll have uh, new new stuff up at c19coalition.org, and we'll, we'll put a link in the show description. Uh, where hopefully, we'll give people some hope that uh, that help is on the way. But it's been it's been quite the experience uh, trying to find uh, trying to find help. And and the thing I want to ask you about, and the thing I found so striking is, we're all horrified by the news. You know, the idea of nurses using ponchos instead of proper uh, gowns to protect themselves or having to treat COVID parents, patients without masks, um, kids without laptops, you know, people who can't get groceries and on and on and on. So when we hear about those problems, you know, and obviously the virus itself, when we hear about those problems, we have this tendency to say, well, I'm not a scientist. So what can I do about it? I can't work on a vaccine or I, I don't know anything about supplying a supply chain. I can't help with that. And we have, we think of all the reasons why we can't help. And yet help with COVID has been this really interesting example where people with software skills, 
that seem at first blush very removed from the problems we were facing were able to come in and act as a force multiplier. So talk about what you've seen here or how, how it's felt for you, the kind of unexpected connections between the skills people have and the needs we as a society have and, and how that matchmaking can make a big difference. Definitely. The most important thing is, like like you said, it doesn't matter if during the day you are you know, a doctor or during the day you're a lawyer. What happens is, is like when you join a lot of these projects, they, they probably are just a ragtag group of people that are trying to make a difference. And oftentimes it starts with, you know, either an idea or, or a team and they're trying to turn this into reality. And they're just, you know, not everybody's stepping up, right? So, but the people who do step up and who are willing to get out of their comfort zone and just go and apply and say, I can help with this. And then sometimes you just have to say, I just want to help. This is just an example. Oftentimes people have different skills that can be applied in different areas. So if you are listening to this and you're wondering, well, you know, I just, you know, I'm just a gamer. Why do I know? This is just an example, right? I'm just a gamer. I don't know what to mm-hmm. do. It's like, I don't know if you're a gamer and you play video games, you actually might be very good at organizing, right? You play only video games. My kingdom for someone who can organize a 40 person World of Warcraft raid right now. Exactly. Right. And here's the thing, like, there's a lot of projects that have, you know, visionary people and a lot of people that have like amazing software engineers, but maybe they're just very bad at organizing. So you could, you know, you could make an impact and it actually could be very fun because, you know, if you're a gamer, you figure out gaming, you know, the difference between Overwatch or Valiant, whatever the new game is pretty much is the same. But if you want to learn the supplier mask business, that's actually a super interesting game as well. And you can treat it as a game. So just can make connections in, in kind of kind of ways. I'll put in one plug. If there's anyone listening right now who is convinced that their skills will not translate, if you can answer a phone and talk to a human being in a nice way, and you have no other skills but that, we will 100% put you to work at PPE Coalition. You don't have to call China. You don't have to talk to suppliers. All you have to do is get people's information who call into the hotline, uh, write down what they tell you, and then we have an entire database of responses that experts will help you put together to send them. So you don't have to be the expert. You don't have to know anything at all. Uh, if you can talk on the phone and don't have severe social anxiety disorder, then you're 100% qualified and we desperately need people who can answer the phone. So please look us up, PPE Coalition on helpwithcovid.com and uh, click the uh, I want to volunteer button and we will we'll get you plugged in. And of course, I'm just plugging my own project because I know it well, but there must be hundreds of examples of things like that, where if you know how to tweet, you could be somebody's social media manager. And don't tell me you're not qualified because you don't know that. I, I was talking to somebody the other day who said, I can't help with that project because I, I need to find, I need to partner with someone who knows strategic communications. And I'm like, you mean writing an email? And he's like, no, strategic communications. I said, you mean writing an email? And he's like, oh, I guess I mean writing an email. It's like just the world has changed all of a sudden and there's no time for the kind of corporate BS and delays and politics we used to put up with. Now is the time we got to take matters into our own hands. And I coached him through how to write the email himself. And it wasn't as good as if he'd gotten an expert in strategic communications to help him with it. But on the other hand, it got done that day and it mattered that day. So it, it was a success. Uh, because a better email a week later would have been too late. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. That's awesome. What surprised you the most? 
what what were you expecting maybe that didn't happen everything <laughs> um okay so my first surprise my first feeling is like when we actually went into quarantine so I, i'll take you through my all my surprises the first thing is when we actually went into quarantine mm-hmm. actually seeing the u.s going to quarantine was something that I, I didn't think i was going to see in my lifetime yeah. um so that was my first surprise my second surprise was and I, I know this was like i should have seen this this was very silly of me but i didn't think it was going to last longer than three weeks i had this feeling right when we went to quarantine where like we're going to find this drug we're going to just start manufacturing like crazy and we'll be out and so here we are six weeks later my third surprise was i mean obviously i have to say it's definitely the fin- the financial markets that, that everything that's happening in the financial markets right now it's it, completely confused about everything the fourth surprise is this idea of of you know certain approaches that are being pushed right now that probably not going to work like you know stuff like contact tracing which you know I'm, i'm very bearish on and you know people pushing drugs that might not work or have serious side effects so all this idea of like people being pushing solutions just to feel better, which might not work instead of actually thinking about approaches that might work. Um, on the positive side, on like the good surprises, it's like everything around help with COVID is a surprise. I don't believe neither myself, neither Sam, neither Dustin thought that, you know, we're going to have like 10,000 volunteers and 600 projects, right? I mean, I, I'm pretty sure like none of us thought that. And And I know this is going to be repetitive, but, you know, just the all volunteers and everybody applying to, to help and stepping up, but also the project owners and the fact that, like, everybody's willing to help is just absolutely amazing. And, you know, when we did the carbon request for startups for YC, that's when I had the first feeling of, like, you can actually get people to, especially smart people, to help on the real problem as long as you don't involve your ego. I feel like that's the most important thing is like whenever people try to do good, whenever people try to do anything, they involve their ego. And the secret of doing projects that are around serious crisis, like whether it's humanitarian or like climate change, COVID, whatever, is like you really have to let your ego go. Meaning, you know, help with COVID is not my project. Help with COVID is, is not, you know, Was, was came up with a discussion between Sam and Dustin, and now it's run by a core team of volunteers. They are doing most of the work. And when we did the climate change, you know, we had like four or five people, six, seven people who just spend a lot of time thinking about the problem and contributing ideas and people writing design, and they deserve all the credit. So I feel that I'm very optimistic on, on the world and you know, we're definitely going to get out of here stronger. Um, on the short term, yeah, it looks, you know, let's be honest, it, it looks a bit bleak. Um, and, you know, I've, we might have to stay indoors for a lot longer than we think we will. Mm-hmm. But we're going to get out of it. Like, we're going to get out of it. And the only thing we have to make sure is that we, now the focus, not, right now the focus is like technology and science. But I feel that What we're going to find out in the next couple of months is that we're going to have to stay indoors for a lot longer. 
and that's going to affect the economy in a, in a very, very hard ways. And I think YC, what they did right now, it's like what they're focusing on is like all these people who are tragically unemployed will not have the same job again. So kind of like the, the stuff, some stuff I'm thinking about, but this is very like early on, like I haven't done anything. And I, it's very early on. It's like, how do you actually, if this really does last longer than I know, it's like, how do you actually employ, how do you help these people who are unemployed to find jobs or find opportunity? And they might not be, they, they cannot all be Instacart drivers or, 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 Uber, or Uber drivers, right? They're just not enough demand for that people. So how can you create a new economy around people working from home? And, you know, just stuff like that. Like, I feel that I'm optimistic, but we're going to have to solve a lot of problems very soon. I hope a lot of those people, we will give them the support they need to become entrepreneurs themselves. That, yes. That's going to clearly have to be part part of the solution. I, I agree 100%. And, like, you think about stuff like Lambda School. Like, Lambda School, I know there's, like, you know, there's, like, good PR and bad PR. But, like, Lambda School might be the future of education. Like, right now, like, you have a lot of universities who are asking for money and, like, switching to online. And, like, people are realizing, oh, why am I paying so much money for wasting so much time? And... Then you have Lambda School, which is like designed from the first online. And I, I'm actually a huge fan. So more, more Lambda schools, maybe. Maybe other stuff like more online education. Um, I think that with the whole training and education, we're just going to enter a whole new chapter where, where this might be like a new huge industry. Who do you think are the real heroes of this crisis? The doctors, for sure. Like, there's, there's no doubt, right? I mean... Like the most people that the people the the area that die the most are the doctors. Like if you look at any statistics in any country, I feel like if you look at the biggest, the the, the most vulnerable area are like not doctors, like the medical, the health people. The, and, and if you look at them, like first of all, they're like they're going in knowing that they're putting their life at risk. They are getting paid nothing. Maybe some of them are being fired. When they go home, like their neighbors look at them like, oh, if this person infected, it's not infected. We're not giving them the equipment they need. Um, they're understaffed and they're seeing people die left and right. Um, it's insane. And like, it's very easy for us to be disconnected from that because like, oh, we, we, um, we, we were, were at home, right? But you know, I feel like if you're a news organization or stuff, you should actually show people what these doctors, what these health, not doctors, like no doctors, nurses, everybody, like what they're going through. Because it's just like war, right? As if war is this like thing that's just, oh, we're just fighting on the population and we're doing good and whatever, like, you know, dismisses the horrors that are happening there. And right now I feel like or all desensitized, or like, or see, oh, the number of death grew by whatever, whatever. But if there was like an actual news, or like people would actually see, you know, what these people are going through, it, it would change public perception. And I feel like they should be a lot more respected. What steps do you think we could take now that will make the post-crisis world better? It depends. It's, I, my question is like, the problem is I have. It's very hard to say what's going to happen. So 
know, you have the drug, you have, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, the Gilead drug. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy if it works or not. I was just on a call with someone before and they said that they are, it works on New York and they were like, well, we basically did an analysis and this is, we're highly optimistic about it. All the studies that have failed, uh, failed because they were giving it too late. And if you give this, uh, this pill in the first three to four days, it's always going to work. If you give it, we're talking about chloroquine, right? No, no, the rem. Oh, rem Yeah, yeah. So the, apparently, what happened, what works is like the the problem with it. You have to take it in the first three to four days. Uh, if you take it after, it's not going to work because it just uh, limits the spread in the beginning. And so, people, the reason like what's happening, everybody's so optimistic, is because apparently it, it is work. It, it does work if it's in the first three to four days. And if that happens, like there's this circumstance in which like people are going to feel more comfortable getting out of the house. But the problem is, you know, they can, the best case scenario, they can make like 10 million, right? 10 million, 20 million pills this year. It's a very complicated process. So it will still be endorsed for a very, very long time, according to some analysis. For the medical equipment, I believe Ryan Peterson from Flexport had an amazing blog post. And when we were researching for 1 billion masks, we arrived at the same conclusion he is. The supply problem has been resolved for the most part. Feel free to correct me. Um, and the problem is leadership, where the, there's like this mistrust between uh, the factories and the people who are buying them. And we need someone to actually put the $100 million, buy masks, ship them to the US, and they'll sell them a cost. And otherwise, like nothing's going to get done. And usually this obvious should be in some sort of way the government, but that's not happening. So on the PPE side, like what we need is like leadership. We need someone, and this can be a private person, you know, because it could be Bloomberg, Eric Schmidt, whatever. Like they need someone to go and like say, you know, we need these funds. Um, and I'm going to run this and I'm going to be the face of it and I'm going to take a risk. Um, and on the other side, on the side of, what the person listening can do is think about how, if there's this, this situation in which we're going to have to stay indoors for another like six to 18 months, but even if that doesn't happen, you know, considering like a lot of people who are fired or let go are not going to be employed again, it's like, how can we build a world where like they're going to be able to work? And how is this economy going to change? How is the world going to change that? We can we can actually have these people learn a skill that can is productive and that can earn their money and build a new digital economy, so to say. Where do you think we go from here? How do we get out of the crisis? Okay, so my feeling is, one of these drugs are going to turn out that it actually works. They will there be slow. Uh, there's going to be like one of the best case scenarios where like there's going to be a slight opening of the economy. You're not going to go to bars or concerts or to work anytime soon, but people are going to be able to get out of the house, go grocery shopping, using masks and stuff like that. Uh, we're going to have a pretty unreal experience for the next six to 18 months. And then it will, we'll have a vaccine and we'll, we'll go back to normal. But I feel that I'm very, I'm very optimistic, especially about the news around the new drugs. And I think that we're going to hear a lot of more good news, hopefully soon about that. 
And afterwards, it's just about making sure that a lot of the stuff is out of our hands, right? Especially with the government and stuff. But I know. So thinking about this, um, I'm optimistic, like, by this summer or, like, this fall, we'll have enough uh, medicine for the frontline workers and for more of the people that are most at risk. And we will have a new economy that is derived based on digital and technology. Um, there's so many problems that need to be solved. And to be honest, it's a lot. I think that a lot of very rich, influential people will step up and will, unfortunately, will provide the help that governments are not able to provide. Because obviously, I would love the governments to provide the help, in, but I don't feel like it's going to happen. What do you think is going to happen? No one can predict the future. And I think we're being tested like never before. And if people come together and say, you know, and this is not the world we want to live in. We, we, we want to acknowledge the mistakes that we've made in the past and we want to build a new, a new normal together. I think, I think we have the, the raw materials that we need. We have the science aptitude if we're willing to listen to the scientists if we're willing to support basic research and make the long-term investments that are needed we have the remains of the institutions our grandparents built for us in another time of crisis and uh, if we do the work we can we can recover them and make them future-proof for the 21st century as you say we have this digital technology that we could build a new more equitable broadly shared prosperity economy on top of and so are we going to do it I think that's that's really the question. And I got to say, of everything that has helped keep me going during this time, the spirit of the volunteers and the kind of civic engagement of just ordinary people who have thrown themselves into this problem, and especially, you know, through help with COVID uh, and with your help uh, has been has been really powerful. So I just I wanted to say thank you for making that possible, for helping out and for being a source of inspiration in these dark times. Um, it means a lot. Thank you. But, you know, all the credits go to the, all the volunteers and all the projects and to people like you. And, you know, to the listeners, you can make a difference too. Just go on the website and it doesn't have to be help with COVID, right? It can be any website. Just go find something you're passionate about and try to help out. This has been Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Rees. Out of the Crisis is produced by Ben Ehrlich, edited by Jacob Tender. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Hosting is by Breaker. For more information on COVID-19 and ways you can help, visit helpwithcovid.com. If you have feedback or you're working on a project related to the pandemic, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at E-R-I-C-R-I-E-S. Let's solve this together.